PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another episode of EM Board Bombs Podcast, where board studying is now enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs, one of the co-founders and co-hosts of this lovely little podcast. Today, I will not be joined by the illustrious Dr. Iltafat Hussein. He's actually on a book tour right now. Um, he's marketing his new emergency medicine textbook called A Muggle's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Should be a great read. I heard it's on Amazon as well as Alibaba. You can buy a pallet of those books for about 25 cents each. So for each 10 to 15 minute episode, you will gain high yield, and I mean high yield, board knowledge. And as we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. Please sign up on our website for free updates and episodes as well as printed handouts on topics. And you can do this by going to our website at www.emboardbombs.com. That is emboardbombs.com. You should sign up right now as you're listening. If you're driving, don't sign up. Also, find us on Twitter, and our handle is at emboardbombs. Let's get to it. I got such an exciting topic today for you. So a 57-year-old male patient presents to the ED after being found down at home. He was apparently reading Gilderoy Lockhart's new bestseller, Magical Me, and decided against going to dialysis for two sessions. He was found by his roommate days later, somnolent and complaining of shortness of breath, only uttering, Dobby is free. He was brought urgently to the ED, and his blood pressure on arrival was tenuous, 90 over 60, not the best. So pads are placed by the nursing staff, and then suddenly pulses are non-palpable. The monitor shows a coarse, irregular, wide, complex rhythm on the monitor, so which should be the immediate step? Choice A, immediately begin chest compressions. Choice B, synchronized cardioversion at 150 joules. Choice C, IV calcium chloride administration. Choice D, unsynchronized cardioversion at 200 joules. And choice E, overdrive pacing. Correct answer here is going to be choice D, unsynchronized cardioversion at 200 joules, also known as defibrillation. So let's talk about electricity in the ED. If you know me personally, I absolutely love electricity in the ED. I love electricity in general. Light bulbs are a great thing. But electricity in the ED is utterly fantastic. I love shocking patients. Patients that need it, of course. Not just random people or people I don't like. So the principle of cardioversion here, the principle of electricity and depolarizing the heart, it is going to be a depolarization action involving a reentrant current. Basically, this makes the tissue refractory. It makes them unable to participate in a reentrant type of arrhythmia anymore. So this reflects a wide range of arrhythmias, right? If you go down your ACLS tachyarrhythmia protocol, you'll see that for pretty much any unstable patient with a tachyarrhythmia, cardioversion is indicated. Let's talk about the differences here. There's really only three things we can do with electricity in the ED. Let's just name all three of them. We got synchronized cardioversion, desynchronized cardioversion, another way of saying that is defibrillation, and the third one is going to be pacing. We're not going to talk about pacing today, but that's a whole different conversation and a whole different podcast. But keep in mind, that is an option that we use electricity for, unstable bradyarrhythmias. And so synchronized cardioversion, that is the delivery of energy that is basically synchronized, literally, to a QRS complex. And the reason we do this is because we want to deliver this bolt of energy of, in joules 
to the patient's heart, we want to time it the right time, right? If you time it the wrong time, there's a probability that you could basically offset the rhythm in the heart and then send the patient into ventricular fibrillation or some type of, you know, very adverse tachyarrhythmia. So that's why this is synchronized. The monitor itself, as you click for synchronized cardioversion, will automatically detect the QRS complex and then send that burst of electricity during that time. Unsynchronized cardioversion, otherwise known as defibrillation, is a asynchronous delivery of shock randomly during the cardiac cycle, because really there is no cardiac cycle, right? So what are these two rhythms that are going to get defibrillation? There's only two in the entire world you should be defibrillating. Must not have a pulse for this. These two shockable rhythms are going to be VTAC and VFib. So ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. These are the only two that ever will get defibrillation, ever. So whenever you hear the words defibrillation or unsynchronized cardioversion, you should be thinking pulseless VTAC or VFib, which of course doesn't have a pulse. So let's talk about a little deeper here. What are the factors affecting cardioversion, right? So electrode position is big. So when you put the pads on someone, we don't use the paddles anymore, but when you put pads on someone, they're going to be in either the anterior lateral position or anterior posterior position. And, you know, I learned this from one of my mentors earlier. You got to think when you're putting the pads, you want to basically pretend there's an arrow going through the heart because you want that current to travel from one pad to the other pad. So that's why the anterior lateral approach is popular, especially when someone is unexpectedly about to code. You throw the pads on really fast. You can't turn them to their back to put the posterior one on. Um, there is a tiny, 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 tiny bit of evidence suggesting the AP position is better than the AL. So if you can go for it, try to do your best to do the anterior posterior, but don't let this interrupt you know, your uh, compressions, if someone is getting compressions at the time, or if they're unstable to turn to their back, that's okay. Just do anterior lateral for the time being. There's minimal evidence regarding this anyway, and it will not be tested on. It's just a little life pearl. Just a little life pearl. So pad size is another thing, right? The bigger the pad uh, for the right patient size is better. Monomorphic versus biphasic current. This is really interesting. Just a side thing here. Um, the biphasic current basically means there's a reverse current polarity um, in about 10 milliseconds. So the first current wave sends, and then there's a reverse current polarity back through the other pad. And basically that allows for a much more effective uh, cardioversion process. Um, we've basically been doing biphasic defibrillators for several years now. So almost every modern hospital in the United States should have a biphasic uh, defibrillator. Uh, and it's been shown to be better overall than the monomorphic. So much so that there has actually been an increase in successful conversion of VFib, reducing myocardium exposure to peak high current, right? We have to use a less amount of joules. In monomorphic, you're using like 370, 380 to 400, 600 sometimes. So it reduces cellular injury, reduces post-shock myocardial stunning as well as, of course, skin irritation and effects. Transthoracic impedance, and especially, this is not even accounting for, you know, the larger people, right? The large body habitus. So that is an important part of factors affecting cardioversion success. All right, so here's getting back to the stem of the question here. We have a guy here who came in. He has a coarse, irregular, wide, complex rhythm on the monitor. That's suggesting ventricular fibrillation. Whenever you hear coarse, irregular, wide, complex rhythm and no pulses, that is what ventricular fibrillation is. Could you make an argument for VTAC? Sure, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, is this guy is pulseless. He's in VFib, possibly pulseless VTAC. It doesn't really matter. You look at the monitor, you don't see pulses. You see a wide rhythm. He has pads placed. You shock this gentleman, and you shock him at 200 joules with a biphasic current, and you don't think about it. Studies have shown that if there is a decreased time to defibrillation, that improves the likelihood of successful conversion to a perfusing rhythm. 
and patient survival, therefore. And so, yes, we harp on compressions. And this is probably one of the first questions that you've gotten probably in a while that has said compressions are not the answer. It's really funny. In med school, compression questions were like always the answer is compressions, right? <laughs> Start compressions, do compressions, do them harder, do them better. There are situations where you need to defibrillate before even starting compressions. And the reason is if you have a defibrillator immediately available, pads are placed, defibrillator is right there, it is on. If you charge it immediately and deliver a shock, the 10 seconds or whatever, or fewer really, of doing CPR, that's likely not gonna do any substantial perfusion. You're not making any difference. If you look at all the graphs of perfusion from CPR, it takes time and effort to build up the perfusion from the CPR. So that's why you know I can't emphasize enough, when given the opportunity, you need to quickly, quickly defibrillate, jump on the chance to get rid of V-fib and pulseless VTAC. And there's actually up to like a 95% success rate in terminating ventricular fibrillation if you have a short duration, that means less than a two minute time to shocking and prompt cardioversion here. So prompt cardioversion up to 95% success rate in terminating ventricular fibrillation. That's pretty darn good. And that's the importance, of course, of making sure when you have an unstable kind of peri-shock or shocky looking patient to immediately hook them up to the pads and turn on the defibrillator. One, because this saves time, precious time, right? When the patient does have a pulse and when he loses one, you can not only have your defibrillator already on, already reading rhythms, and potentially even already charging, and you have saved life-saving amount of time for this patient. You are trying your best to maximize the success rate of converting this rhythm, and the earlier you can convert it, the better outcome for this patient. The worst situation you could be in here is being unprepared. And that means that you don't have the defibrillator on or you turn it on, but you never put the pads on. And this shouldn't happen because the defibrillator, when it comes on, it does something like this. Check pads. Attach pads. Analyzing now. Stand clear. Shock advised. Push to shock. So if the shock is unsuccessful, of course, then you would resume compressions and then you go through your whole ACLS algorithm. Another wrong answer here would be checking a pulse after defibrillation. That is a big no-no. Remember that the myocardium is stunned. And because of that, you need to quickly resume your compressions, resume perfusion, and don't ever stop to check a pulse after shocking someone in ACLS. And just as a quick aside and a quick plug, if you go to emboardbombs.com, you can find one of our quick, quick, less than three-page study guides on the most up-to-date knowledge of ACLS, a quick memory guide for that, as well as when you achieve ROSC on a patient, what should be your first steps of care. Check that out on our website. So when to do synchronized cardioversion, let's branch out here and talk about a few more things. Synchronized cardioversion, remember I told you, these are people that have pulses, and this is gonna be a delivered electrical current that is synchronized to the QRS complex. So you gotta keep in mind that any tachyarrhythmia that's unstable, is gonna get synchronized cardioversion. So any single test question, and I did this um, when I was preparing with Roche Review and other board prep books, and, you know, they give those EKG questions. They're like, okay, here's a picture of this like horribly fast looking arrhythmia. And then all I did was look at that picture. I'm like, oh, that's some type of tachyarrhythmia. I'm not gonna to try to diagnose which one it is. I scroll down, I look at the blood pressure, and it's like a 45 year old female and her blood pressure is like, you know, I don't know, 80 over 40. You're like, oh, that's unstable. And it says, what do you wanna do next? And I scroll down there and I'm like, okay, shock. And then that was done. Of course, I, because I'm really super concerned I'll miss some like zebra thing. I'll go back and read the stem, I guess. But overall, that is gonna be the answer to the question, right? I've seen like so many of these questions. They're like, okay, here's a tachyrhythmia. Don't really try to diagnose it. Um, here's her blood pressure. What do you wanna do? Oh, of course, I'm gonna shock her. 
or him. That's pretty much it. If you have any type of wide, irregular, narrow, regular, anything, regular or irregular, wide or narrow, tachyarrhythmia, pretty much no contraindication to doing synchronized cardioversion, especially on test questions. That is what they are going for. So here's some stats. There are high success rates of synchronized cardioversion in SVT and A flutter. And that's because, you know, think about that these people are young people, right? They are typically more young people. They typically have no, you know, structural heart disease. They have short-term symptoms. They come in, you know, within an hour of their symptoms usually, and they're going to have high success rates on synchronized cardioversion. It's actually less successful cardioversion in atrial fibrillation, as we know, of course, you know, with all these patients walking around with chronic AFib. And that's, of course, due to AFib being more associated with what? Larger atria, longer duration of process of that arrhythmia. And there's a precipitating cause that's likely still present, right? Why do they get that AFib in the first place? Several causes, and that's a whole other podcast. So let's finish up here with a few more things in terms of tachyarrhythmia algorithms. So remember, when you approach this patient, like the one in the question, ABCs, airway breathing circulation, stable or unstable, any signs of instability are going to be, you know, hypotension, ultramental status, chest pain, shortness of breath, acute heart failure, right? Are their legs swollen? Do they have JVD? Or they uh, have a new murmur that's brand new, and they, the patient says, hey, this has never happened before, this all happened in the past 24 hours, or you know, are they even talking to you, right? And basically, it's like, hey, the patient not, may not be in shock, they're holding their blood pressure, but, you know, what is the patient doing, uh, neurologically speaking? Uh, alter mental status, you know, their blood pressure may be holding, but what are they typically at home? Are they 160s, 170s at home typically, and now they're 100s? You know, that's probably a new low for them. And so you have to understand these patients are kind of circling that shock drain per se, and these are people that could crash any moment. So you might make exceptions to these people that, hey, they may not be in shock, but earlier electricity might actually help these people. So last minute things, housekeeping items that could come up on task, kind of pop epi stuff. You can shock pregnant patients. So you totally can actually deliver cardioversion to pregnant patients. However, you obviously should be doing fetal heart rate monitoring during this time, but otherwise it's actually a pretty safe procedure to do, much safer than some of the medications we give in pregnancy. You can also place pads when someone has an IED or a pacemaker present. It's okay to do that, but you have to at least place the pads greater than 10 centimeters away from the device. And, you know, this is where anterior posterior is recommended uh, for the most part. You know, there are some complications of cardioversion. Remember that. So what's the most common side effect of cardioversion? This could be one of those pop-epi stats again. And you have to know overall life. It could be hypotension. When you stun the myocardium at any point, you're going to have a transient drop in your map, and that's going to be a hypotensive process. You can get scared and irritation, of course, because you're burning, burning. I'm laughing at my own uh, little list here for complications. It's like, okay, duh, skin irritation. That's like the least of your problems when someone's coding. Um, the IC will put that as one of their uh, problem lists. Skin irritation from uh, ACLS. Consult term. STT wave changes that disappear in a few minutes. So typically this is going to be pretty obvious, right? You just stun the myocardium, delivered electricity, change some polarity, probably in some of those muscle cells, and that's going to potentially dissipate in a few minutes, we hope. If it sticks around, then you potentially have a patient that could be having an ischemic event that caused that rhythm in the first place. And of course, any tachyarrhythmia that could be triggered from the cardioversion. Remember that you could be cardioverting someone, either synchronized or unsynchronized, and then you cause another rhythm, right? And this is definitely documented, you know, even in defibrillation. If you don't deliver a high enough energy, sometimes you can actually introduce another reentrant arrhythmia, such as like non-sustained VTAC, which can be very temporary, it goes away in less than 30 seconds, or some type of sinus arrhythmia. Remember that thromboembolism is a major complication of some of these rhythms that have been around for a while. And, you know, out of all these rhythms right here, the one that's going to be around the longest, as we mentioned, is going to be AFib, right? That's the one that's usually more chronic. It's more, I, would, I don't want to say durable, but livable, right? People live in chronic AFib all the time, in and out. 
and you know, just going over the last two answer choices here to be thorough. Um, choice C said IV calcium chloride administration. Sure, that's a great thought. You know, the guy is missing dialysis, probably has hyperkalemia. That's the most common trigger of this VTAC VFib event. However, when you're in ACLS coding, you don't do that first, right? We either do compressions or early defibrillation. Not going to be the right answer, and this is a common trip up. If this guy had pulses, then I would totally think about doing that. And he would, in real life, get one of these medications immediately. However, this is ACLS, which means you jump on the chest or you shock it. Choice E was overdrive pacing, not an ACLS. This person is not having perfusing rhythm. You don't wait to overdrive pace the heart. You immediately need to get rid of this uh, coarse, irregular, wide complex rhythm, which is, which is likely V-fib or pulseless VTAC. Alrighty, so that is another board bomb delivered all by my lonesome. Hopefully it wasn't too boring. Remember to sign up on our website at emboardbombs.com for future episodes, new content, updates. Again, that is emboardbombs.com. It's totally free to sign up, no cost to you. Basically, subscribers that sign up for free on our website, they get exclusive review guides that's only available to them offline via email. It's not on the website for everyone to see. So you get special stuff and you should definitely sign up. Please find us on Twitter. Our handle is at, at emboardbombs. And drop us an Apple review, you know, really help us. We would really greatly appreciate it. If there's a particular topic you want to let us know in the future, you can shoot us an email after subscribing or just drop an Apple review and mention how much you love this podcast. If you could give 10 out of 5 stars, you totally would. And you have a podcast topic suggestion. See you next time for more Ian Borbombs action. Thanks again. Have a great day. Shock advised.